0: A few years ago, I heard about this idea called, quote-unquote, love languages, and this has totally shaped how I see my relationships. I know my own love languages, which are physical touch and acts of service. I know the love languages of the people that I'm closest with, and this has helped me show up for people and navigate moments of misunderstanding. So when I heard that my colleague Richard Stema was looking into this, I was excited. Richard is a neuroscientist turned science journalist here at The Post, and he has been reporting on the science behind love languages.
1: This idea that we each have one primary way that we give and accept expressions of love from a romantic partner, and it's important that you know how to speak your partner's preferred language of love. The five languages are words of affirmation, such as giving compliments, giving gifts, Acts of service is the third one, which is like helping your partner with chores or in other ways. Uh, The fourth is spending quality time together. And the fifth is physical touch, such as hugs, kisses, cuddles, and sex.
0: The concept was introduced 30 years ago by a Baptist pastor-turned-relationship counselor who wrote a best-selling book about it. And the idea of love languages took off.
1: The love languages are a really popular way of thinking about love and about how to be a loving partner to someone. But, you know, according to the science that is out there, it's probably not true.
0: After years of popularity, researchers have weighed in on this theory, and they are skeptical— A new paper published this month challenges the core ideas behind the love languages and says that they may not be the most accurate or even the most helpful way to think about love.
1: So it's like this sort of weird tension of people, millions of people, finding it very useful, uh, finding it very intuitive and understandable, but, you know, scientists not finding much evidence that it's a thing that, you know, helps or that exists.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Friday, January 26th. I'm Martine Powers, and today we are getting into the problems with the love languages theory and what we can possibly turn to instead to make sense of our relationships. Richard talked to producer Emma Talkoff, so I'll let them take it from here.
2: I feel like I've been kind of just ambiently aware of this love languages concept for a long time. I don't even remember how I first heard about it or or where I thought it came from. So what is the origin?
1: Yeah, I would say you're not alone in that uh, because it's you know, sort of been around. People talk about it. But the concept really originated back in 1992 in a book written by a Baptist pastor named Gary Chapman. He wrote the book, The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts. So he was really drawing upon his experiences he had as a pastor, counseling couples he met in church and in his hometown in North Carolina, and you know basically taking notes on what were the problems or sticking points in the relationships he saw.
3: I recently got to talk with Chapman about that work. So eventually I took time to sit down and read and work through probably 10 years of notes that I made when I was counseling and asked myself the question, When someone said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me. What did they want? What were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories. He
1: would find that these five areas were things that always came up in his counseling sessions that, oh, my husband's not giving enough words of affirmation, or uh, he's not helping around the house, or my wife's not spending enough quality time, or we're not like having enough physical contact, or the gifts that he gives sucks. And these are things that he came up with from his experiences and wrote in the book. And since 1992, the book has had a few updates and additions, but is really grounded in his experiences counseling these uh, couples as a pastor.
2: Why why do you think this book took off in the way that it did? Like, it's not really a scientific concept, but I feel like there's something about it that people maybe think feels scientific. Like, why do you think it spoke to people so intensely?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's the fascinating thing about this. And you're right. It does feel scientific and also, you know, feels intuitive that, oh, of course, like we need to speak the same language, we need to communicate better, we need to be on the same wavelength. Like that is, I think, true. And I think that's really useful to think about in a relationship um, that, you know, we have different needs and we need to communicate those needs. That's a really solid concept. The other thing is, you know, it gives you an easy solution, right? In a sense, like you have five possible ways of expressing love and you figure out the one that works for your partner and you just, you know, you you focus on that. And it's very actionable. Be like, oh, okay, you like physical touch. I'll try to do that more. Um, or I'll be more thoughtful in my gifts because you really appreciate that. And it's, you know, it's, it's useful and it's easily... You know, like, you you could remember it, you could accept it as true and use it. (laughs) I think that's really powerful um, and probably why people like the concepts.
2: Yeah, so I guess on that note, like, I'm kind of suspicious of any relationship advice that's so, you know, one size fits all, right? And I'm not alone (sighs) in that. Can you talk a little bit about the recent attention that Chapman's book and this five love language theory has gotten?
1: Yeah, so I would say that Chapman's book—it's interesting because when it first published in 1992, it wasn't very popular. But over the years, it's sort of gained momentum and has been a you know bestseller at least the past few years. Um, hmm. And you know, at the same time, it wasn't really empirically tested much by scientists because they don't really take it seriously as a scientific way of understanding relationships. But recently, relationship scientists were like, yeah, like we need to you know, look at it because it's just so popular.
4: I'm Emily Impet. I am a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, and I'm the director of the Relationships and Wellbeing Lab.
1: So recently, relationship scientists at the University of Toronto and York University got together to look into this and really dive into what the scientific literature had to say about love languages.
4: I've always been skeptical of Chapman's claims, so my colleagues and I really set out to review the existing empirical research on the love languages to see if any of it supports Chapman's key claims or assumptions. We essentially found 10 studies that really directly tested what we see as the three kind of main claims that Chapman makes in his book.
1: And basically, what they found was like three core concepts in the love languages don't really have much support. The first is that it doesn't seem like people really have a primary love language. Hmm. Second, that, you know, there's probably more than five ways than the, the languages to express your love. And the third is that, you know, sharing the same love language as your partner or speaking their preferred one doesn't lead to a better relationship or increased relationship satisfaction. So it sort of gets at, like, okay, these core things about what makes the love languages compelling doesn't seem to be supported by the evidence when you try to test it uh, rigorously.
0: After the break... Emma and Richard talk about how the scientists came to the conclusion that the love languages might not be real, and how we might try to understand love differently. We'll be right back.
2: So, Richard, you were telling me about the issues that the researchers had found with the love language theory. Can you tell me more about those issues?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the first is probably the most crucial, which is that we have a primary love language. You know, the one that you know, speaks the most uh, emotionally in a romantic relationship. And the researchers point out that the official Love Languages quiz is sort of set up so that, you know, you have 30 questions and they sort of pit each of the Love Languages up in a head-to-head debate.
4: So, for example, if you took this quiz, you would need to choose whether you find holding hands or receiving gifts to be more meaningful.
1: And of course, like in real life, we don't often have to make this kind of trade-off. Like your Mm -hmm. partner is not only like necessarily going to give you gifts or touch you. Like that's uh, sort of a false dichotomy. So when researchers study this, they don't tend to use that kind of test. Instead, they ask people to rank each of these on a scale of like, you know, one to five. And when they do that sort of measurement, they find, yeah, most people like all of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't hate quality time with your spouse, even if it's not your favorite, I guess. You don't hate, like, getting acts of service. Um, Instead, most people say, like, yeah, like, I like that. I like that one, too, and I like all of them. We don't seem to have a primary love language, um, and we also, you know, have more than five ways of expressing love. Um, So, you know, at least relationship scientists have identified things that don't neatly fall into the categories that Chapman laid out, including, you know, we also appreciate sometimes when our partner gives us autonomy and time alone to do our own thing, or we appreciate when they help support us pursuing our own personal goals and, you know, ambitions. Mm. And one thing that the relationship scientists pointed out is Chapman, his Experiences are with a predominantly religious community who are more likely to be heterosexual and maybe more traditional gender roles. Um, so it might not he might not have captured as much of the need for you know personal autonomy or wanting to integrate into a larger social network that might be more relevant for people with cross cultural relationships or more egalitarian values. So it's like you know just. Getting a sense that these five love languages could be important, but there are other ways of expressing love that people have and will likely find value in as well.
4: In fact, the newest research with really the best methods kind of more simply shows that people tend to report higher satisfaction when their partner expresses love in any of the five love languages, regardless of their own love language. So there's just really no evidence that partners with the same love language or those who try to communicate in each other's, quote unquote, preferred language are more satisfied than those who are mismatched.
2: I'm also wondering and just kind of, you know, revisiting this book from more than 30 years ago, um, Are there other things that you you found that people felt were kind of outdated or other issues people felt with the Love Languages book that maybe have even more serious repercussions than just sort of misunderstanding your partner or something like that?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the book came out in 1992, and it has gone through multiple editions and updates, but there is one particular chapter that has been very controversial and, you know, people have called out as problematic. Hmm. And it's the story of Anne, who is a Hmm. woman that Chapman counseled, who says that she's felt used rather than loved when she's uh, having sexual encounters with her husband, has hate for her husband and the relationship and didn't feel like she could leave because of her moral and religious beliefs. And, you know, Chapman, in his conversations with Anne, he advises Anne to give nothing but verbal affirmations and stop all verbal complaints, but also to initiate more physical touch. And what Chapman encourages is that Anne initiates more sex with the husband and to surprise him by being aggressive and to have a goal of having sex at least once a week and ramping it up to twice a week. And yeah, there's multiple things that could be thought of as problematic in this. One is that it's really suggesting that, you know, you're trying to use the love languages to find out what your partner loves, but how much of that is at the detriment of your own mental health, emotional health, and own needs and, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's also something that feels really dangerous to suggest if there is abuse in a relationship to stay with them and to also lean into some of the things that someone might feel very uncomfortable doing. Mm-hmm. You know, when I spoke with Chapman about this, he said that Anne's experience was meant to illustrate how we can still. Love a person we don't like, but also that we can try to influence how they respond to you by you know, treating them how they would like to be treated. But to his credit, he also says that that you know was not a good illustration. And in the newest print edition in 2015, the advice was slightly changed so that instead of you know making suggestions of having more sex, he advised and to surprise her husband by reaching out with physical gestures like ruffling his hair and to more slowly ease into the sex.
3: I think because the climate's different today in our whole culture in so many ways, you know, that, that a number of people have felt that that was not appropriate. So that's why I felt like I, I really need to change that.
1: I would also like to mention that in the ebook, it's still the original story and the original voice.
2: I feel like it's so interesting hearing about that anecdote in the book because this concept of the love languages has so far outpaced the book itself. Like, I assume Mm. most people who are referring to these love languages in kind of a casual way or throwing them around haven't read the book and wouldn't be aware of any of the actual content.
1: Yeah, and arguably, um, you know, these are anecdotes and his experiences, and that was something that... The relationship researchers brought up is like, these are based on anecdotes. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, well, that's part of the problem is like, he didn't do this in a rigorous way, like across different cross sections of people or relationships and whether it would apply or not, it wasn't really explored.
2: So how has Chapman responded to these kind of recent re-evaluations of his idea?
1: His main, you know, response is like, this is based on his experiences and, you know, he has decades of
3: counseling
1: couples and this sort of success of the love languages kind of speaks for itself.
3: There's a lot of other stuff other than just the love languages in a marriage relationship. This is not all, you know, love is just one emotional need that we have. But I just think there's so much evidence in my mind and feedback from people through the years, and the fact that the book keeps selling and people keep finding it helpful, that anything that they said in the research, to me, doesn't necessarily keep that from helping
1: people. You know, whenever he goes on tour to marriage conferences or to churches around the country, he regularly has like half a dozen couples say that this book saved their marriage. So I think his argument is, yeah, like a lot of people find it useful. Um, to have this idea. And he's not a researcher, but he has seen himself that there's a lot of people who, you know, say it's really helped them. which I, you know I think is valid. It could be used more of a starting point, not mm. like a stopping point of like what you do as a relationship progresses.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess when you really think about it, it does seem kind of obvious that something as complicated and personal as love would not be possible to just break down into these five neat little boxes. And instead, like, it's very complicated and we need to be thinking about a lot of things. So, Richard, I don't know. Should we just throw out this love language concept entirely? Or do you think there's still a piece of this that's worth holding on
1: to? Yeah, I think the personally i think the main benefit of the love languages concept is to think about how you know we all have different needs and that you want to be aware of what your partner needs right now what you need right now and to be able to communicate that the love languages gives you a framework to do that because you have a few choices that you could think about and you have you know, a language to say what you need in the moment. But, you know, I spoke with some other relationship counselors and re- researchers, and they're, I think the consensus is kind of like, it's a good place to start, right? Like, your needs probably do change over time. Your relationship changes over time.
4: All of the things that he identified are important. And so I think the book can be sort of a good conversation starter for couples to identify any kind of currently unmet needs that they might have in the relationship so that they can work to kind of improve things. But what we think Chapman got wrong is actually the metaphor.
1: The relationship researchers sort of like had this idea that a better metaphor, uh, more supported by the science, is to have a sort of balanced diet of, hmm. uh, for your love. That you have multiple nutrients, you know, maybe these five love languages, but that you know, for a time you could sustain yourself on one nutrient, but that's probably not healthy to only have carbs, for example. Um, You need multiple things to help your relationship grow. But at the same time, you know, if you're running a marathon, for example, you might need more carbs. And there's analogously examples where in times of stress, physical touch might be more potent. Um, It's Not one size fits all. Um, Even Chapman, you know, like, acknowledges that. It's like, this is not going to be the one thing that saves your marriage. Like, it's part of it. Um, And I think relationship experts would also get on board with that. You just have to work on the deeper issues that might be in a relationship. Like, what makes you feel appreciated? What makes you feel loved? And trying to figure out how to get at that without just fixating on one love language.
2: Wow. So I guess I'm hearing, just like with everything in life, there is no easy answer. (laughs) Um.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I mean, I I get the, you know, the wants to be like, okay, I figured it out. Like, just do this, you know, one or two things. And it could help a lot, but it's probably not going to save you. It's not going to save your relationship. Instead, it's the hard work of, you know, figuring out, you know, this life you want to build together, this person that you're spending time with. And it's going to change. It's going to be a constant dialogue and um, sort of enjoy that journey and not look for an easy shortcut that probably won't solve everything.
2: Richard, thank you so much for this conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you. Richard Seema writes the Brain Matters column for The Post. He spoke to producer Emma Talkoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff, it was mixed by Sean Carter, and edited by Ariel Plotnick and Lucy Perkins. Thank you also to Maggie Penman. The rest of our team includes Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Alahe Azadi, Monica Campbell, Alana Gordon, Bishop Sand, Arjun Singh, Renny Svrnovsky, Sabi Robinson, Peter Bresnan, Allison Michaels, and Renita Jablonski. I am Martine Powers. Have a great weekend, and remember, if you love the show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.